Welcome to the Dwell Church Sermon Archive. Dwell is a family defined by the love of God and committed to giving it away. Here is this week's message. Welcome you guys today. I hope you made it in. There was a bunch of people running down the street for some reason, and so hopefully you dodged them. Uh, I don't know if you got to see any marathon runners. Man, it'll make you feel good about not running a marathon, right? Like, you're like, wow, I'm proud of you guys. Actually, uh, I have a friend running, and so I saw this morning, got to see them at mile 11, and uh, he should be coming by mile 18 at any second, and that is a totally different crowd at mile 11 and mile 18, man. I tell you what, they look like zombies or something. Like, it's just crazy. And the best part is there's people running a relay, and so at any given point during the marathon, there's somebody who's on their first mile, and they're all like, ha-ha! And then there's somebody, like, dragging through, like, you know, about to soil themselves or something like that. Their muscles no longer work anymore. I mean, it's crazy, right? It's a completely inhuman thing to actually run a marathon. I don't really understand it. Uh, Speaking of inhuman things, today we're talking about John the Baptist. And uh, this guy was a weird guy. Um, He was super, super strange. And uh, we're going to dive into a little bit of who he was and his life and everything like that. You know, I feel like it's kind of the same as a marathon. They're like, well, you could live off of locust and honey. You could probably survive out in the, in the wilderness, but should you? Which is the exact same question of like, yeah, I think you could run 26 miles, but really, really, should you? Is this a thing that human beings were meant to do? I don't really know. Um, also, we're going to jump in today to something kind of interesting, and, and I really am just trying to, I think, make our church a little bit smaller. Uh, last week, I uh, jumped into, uh, people are excited about this, last week I jumped into like some politics and uh, got kind of awkward and uncomfortable for all of us. I'm sorry about that. Uh, today, what I want to do is really just ask the question of many of us, many of us who might think that we're followers of Jesus, and ask the hard question that I think John the Baptist brings to mind for all of us. And ask the question, are we really saved? Are we really followers of Jesus? We may in some ways think that we are, may think that we're like walking down that journey, but I'm not so sure um, for many of us. And and really, this is a lesson to sort of bring to mind, uh, cause us all to really question of what it looks like in our own minds, in our own hearts, in our own lives, of what it looks like to follow Jesus. So let's jump right in. I want to talk about John the Baptist. Uh, First off, uh, we're just going to start off with just sort of painting a picture of this guy. Uh, In order to do that, let's break it down into the outfit, the diet, and the vibe that he was putting off. So first, we'll start with a fit check. Uh, He was wearing camel hair and a leather belt. That's what we know about this guy. Uh, I don't know about camel hair. I imagine it's probably a pretty good look, right? Very breathable. Uh, Camels do really, really well in the desert, so maybe John the Baptist was looking fly. And then wrapping around with a leather belt, man, camel hair and leather, there's got to be nothing better than that. I did not see anybody running the marathon in that this morning. Uh, The diet was locusts and wild honey. Man, how strange is that? Locust and wild honey. Now, I did look it up, and technically it is keto-friendly. It would be a good, like, keto diet. It's low glycemic. You know, honey's a natural sugar, which is nice. Uh, It's organic, carbon neutral, in fact. So uh, it checks out all the way around on the diet check, I think, right? Uh, Now, as far as a vibe, uh, this guy was kind of a jerk. Uh, He was an outsider to society. He was out in the wilderness telling people to repent or it would be bad for them. That is not the typical message that we like from leaders. Maybe he was not a jerk, really, but so much a true prisoner of conscience. 
He felt like he had to do exactly what God told him to do, no matter what anybody else thought of it, no matter how weird we think it is. So he's out there in the wilderness. He's living outside of society and baptizing anyone who would walk up and want repentance. And he's calling them to repentance and to the washing away of their sins. And here's what I love, too. I mean, you know, I've already sort of stated this, that in every single way John the Baptist is like this outsider of society. He is not a welcoming presence. In fact, all of the things that we put together for church and we say, hey, this is what it means to follow, or like this is what it looks like to be a Jesus follower in 2022. And we're like, we want to make sure it's comfortable. We'll give you a nice leather seat to sit in, right? We've got a welcome team out there. None of them are wearing camel hair. Uh, you know, we've got like a, a magnanimous and charismatic and good-looking leader up here preaching to you, right? Like, these are all of our strategies that we use. John the Baptist was employing none of these. He's like, all right, here's the plan, guys. I'm going to go out into the wilderness. I'm going to start eating a lot of bugs, and then I'm going to tell people things they don't want to hear, like they should repent or be baptized. So then, somehow, he starts gaining a following, right? People are coming. People are, like, getting baptized. They're like, hey, we want to do this thing for some reason, right? And then, some more people show up, and this is what he says to them. Verse 7 actually says this. It says, but when he saw many of the Pharisees... Hello? Cool. Oh, much better. Louder. I like it. Thank you, sir. Uh, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? All right. So remember, super weird guy out in the wilderness, a bunch of what would have been pastors of the day probably come up and check it out. And he looks them square in the eye, looks right down the barrel. And he says, oi, you bunch of snakes, who scared you into coming? I think he's Australian, by the way. I don't know if I've, like, included that. Like, I'm just, you know, this is, like, modern day. We're reading it in English. He's probably speaking another language anyway, so I'm just going to call him the Australian kind of guy, right? So he says, oh, you bunch of snakes. That's what he calls them. A brood of vipers is like a, you know, a, a like, bunch of baby snakes, right? Uh, he kind of has that, like, outback vibe. That's kind of the reason for it, right? Like, he's got kind of the wilderness, you know, wearing camel skin, that kind of stuff. And it's not very welcoming to these guys, right? Calling people a bunch of snakes. I actually threw it out to Danielle that maybe the welcome team should give this a shot sometimes. You know, like, people walk up, and they're like, hey, you bunch of snakes. Who scared you out here? Oh, coffee's to the left, right? All right? There's my Australian accent. I worked really hard on it all week long. Um... But she said no. She said that was not the best way to welcome people into church. And it's not the method that we typically use, right? So he's building up this following, and then he starts chasing these people off that are coming actually to get baptized by him, who are coming to repent of their sins. He clearly, clearly, clearly does not like the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, I don't want to talk about them too much here because we're going to have plenty of time to do this later, Uh, a lot of time throughout the book of Matthew to sort of jump in and do a deep dive on the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Uh, But suffice it to say, they were kind of political and religious leaders of the day. Uh, They were in charge of these political and religious sects. They would have been uh, uh, leaders of movements. They would have been in charge of things. There's also like this complex relationship between the Jewish leaders and the Roman leaders of the day. So these guys had some political power, but not unlimited political power. 
uh, but they were like a big deal. So then them coming down to see John was already like an act of humbling themselves, right? And maybe they were just coming to kind of scoff at the whole thing, but them coming down to the river was sort of like them coming down and actually, you know, lowering themselves to be sitting under this other religious leader. And as soon as they walk up, he immediately destroys them. They don't even have any conversation about this. John just says, hey, you're a bunch of snakes. Who warned you about the coming wrath? Now, uh, this picks up on a very important theme in the book of Matthew. In fact, if you had a journal wherein you were writing down themes in the book of Matthew, perhaps you would write something like Matthew despises the religious elite or something like Jesus comforts the weak but makes the strong uncomfortable, that kind of thing. All throughout, these people, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who should have been the most religious people of the day, who should have been the best God followers, who should have been the people who are most important, were actually the ones that are constantly getting rebuffed by Jesus, who are constantly getting pushed away. And here, uh, Matthew is actually kicking off this theme to let you know Uh, that these guys were not in good standing, even with someone like John who was welcoming people, or who was sort of like announcing that Jesus was on his way. And then he says this to them in verse 8. He says, Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So after calling them a bunch of snakes, he looks right in their eyes and says, Hey, hey, your fake righteousness is not going to help you here. Even your real righteousness is not going to do anything for you here. He says, hey, that, you know, ethnic heritage that you have, yeah, yeah, your, your, your great-grandparent, you know, was a, a part of the family of God. That is not going to rescue you here. If God needed a family so badly, he could raise them up from these stones. Instead, instead of trying to prove how good you are, you should just recognize that it is not Enough, And that is why he says this most important line from this entire section, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Now, these guys particularly had a terrible reputation. You'll see this throughout the rest of the book of Matthew uh, for trying to live as if they were following God, but with absolutely no repentance. John is saying something here. He's saying something to them, like all the ways that you sort of pretend to righteousness, all the ways that you're constantly promoting how good you are and how much you're doing right, how good of a follower of God that you are, all of those ways are not going to matter if you're not bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. And here what he's saying here is a metaphor. He's saying like, as if you were a tree, the fruit that you are producing He's saying that fruit doesn't need to show how much of a follower of Abraham you are. That fruit doesn't need to show how good you are and how righteous you are. Instead, that fruit that you bear needs to show how repentant you are. How repentant you are. Or, as Jesus would tell them later in Matthew 23, verse 25 and 26, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. 
Jesus is saying basically the same thing. You might look good on the outside, but it is what count or what is on the inside that counts. And here's what's particularly, I think, frightening and alarming to us reading today, at least to me, is that sometimes I very much feel like that dirty cup. That kind of like, man, I can look good on the outside. I can try and present like a good version of myself. I can try and be good. I can try and do good. I can try and look good. I can try and look as if I am impressive. But inside, I find that I'm still selfish. I'm still jealous. I'm still greedy. I am still self-indulgent. And John here is speaking to the Pharisees, and I think he's speaking to each and every one of us to say that is not good enough. Salvation will not be found in our righteousness. It won't be found in our fake righteousness. It isn't enough. It isn't enough that we come from a good family. It isn't enough that we are good. It doesn't matter that we're better than our neighbor down the street. It doesn't matter that uh, we are even like the best, most good person that we know. It doesn't matter how great that we think that we are and how much we try to be righteous and do enough good. And we try and be kind to people around us and we try and do good things. We try and help people out. We try and think good thoughts. We try and do all of those things. And John here is saying that is simply not enough. You must bear fruit in keeping with repentance. But what does that word even mean, repentance? John here is using the word metanoia. Uh, It literally means to sort of change your mind. It's a complete change of direction. It's a way of saying uh, that I was thinking one way and acting one way, but now I have come to the conclusion that that is not the right way that I need to be going. And so I'm going to change everything about the way that I think, the way that I act. I'm going to change my mind. Craig Blomberg says it this way. Repentance in Greek traditionally implied a change of mind or attitude, but under Old Testament influence, it took on a sense of change of action as well. And so what you have here is a com- this combination that means that John was asking his hearers to change their way of life as a result of a complete change of thought and attitude with regard to sin and righteousness. See, he was doing something really, really special here. Other uh, religious sort of Uh, sects of the time, other groups uh, of the time would actually have ritual washings and purifications. What he was doing by baptizing people was not all that radical necessarily. There are other people that did, did that, but no one else was calling for this level of repentance. No one else was calling people to make a change of mind, a turning away from sin. So to bring it back to the uh, brood of vipers, he's saying they are just here. You remember he said, I, I, who warned you from the coming wrath? He said, you're just here because you want to feel better about yourselves or try and earn heaven yourselves, but you won't be able to because you won't change your mind. You won't bear fruit from your tree in keeping with repentance. You won't reject your own way and repent from your sins. I wonder if this is us. Have you ever noticed uh, that the people who are sort of most haughty and arrogant and prideful about following Jesus, and they just, they kind of, they they feel kind of off? Like, if you're like really proud that you are a follower of Jesus, and you're like, man, I accepted Jesus, like, isn't something kind of strange? And and, and I, I think uh, a lot of times they might be the ones that have actually missed it the most. Like, if you're here today or you're a follower of Jesus and you think that you're here because you're really, really good, 
I'm not sure that, like, you might not even be a Christian. If you think that's the only reason uh, that you're a follower of Jesus, you might have completely missed it. If you think that you are here and you have Jesus because you're smarter than the people that are around you, and you're like, I figured it out, I don't know why they can't figure it out, you might not actually be a Christian. If you think in any way that you deserve it because of some sort of intrinsic value within yourself, some little, uh, little thing that makes you better than the people around you, if you deserve what Jesus gives to us, then you might not actually be one of his followers. But if you think that it is solely by the grace of God that you should even be here, if you think that there is no reason other than his kindness, goodness, and love towards you, that Jesus would even save you, that Jesus would choose you, that Jesus would love you, if you think that he should not overlook the great evil and rebellion that you have uh, committed against him, and you think it's absurd for him to forgive those things, then and only then, through an act of repentance of your own ways, does Jesus actually offer the gift of eternal life. This is a hard truth that following Jesus requires repentance. And repentance means looking at your own way of living, looking at what you think and say and do and saying, I do not want this anymore. I want to reject it. I want to turn away from it and change myself, change my way of living. Our world says that you should constantly feel good about yourself. You should work really hard to feel better and better about yourself. You're trying hard. You mean well. You're better than that other person, right? They're kind of messed up. Give yourself some grace. This got really bad mid-pandemic. Have you ever, like, you've probably heard this phrase, right? Like, give yourself a little grace. Give yourself a little grace. Come on. Uh, And there was a moment mid-pandemic when you were uh, eating cheesecake straight out of the box over the sink, and you hadn't worn underwear in three days or been out of your house. And for the moment, you were like, ah, I don't feel great about myself. And then immediately, this other voice came in and was like, give yourself some grace, man. And now that we're like out of the fog of that, we're like, that's absurd, right? We're like, no, get it together, man. Put on some pants, you know, like that kind of thing. Like, uh, man. But this phrase, give yourself some grace, it's kind of everywhere, I wonder if it's even possible. Like, I, I like it, right? Like, if, in the sense of, like, don't be so hard on yourself, I'm like, okay, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. That's, that sounds about right. I'm not sure that's the way that we use it necessarily. Or even an appropriate use of the word, give yourself some grace. Like, is that even, in, or is that even possible? Can you even save yourself? It's like two prisoners, like, sitting there, like, awaiting sentencing or something like that. And one of them, a guilty person, looks at the other one, a guilty person, and says, hey, uh, for what it's worth, I think you're innocent. The other guy's like, yeah, it's not worth a lot, actually. (laughs) Thanks for that, but okay. In this situation, a guilty person, you and me, tells a guilty person, you and me, give yourself a little bit grace, a little bit of grace, right? No, I think if anyone's actually going to be able to extend grace to someone who is actually guilty, it is going to be a just and righteous judge. We just don't have the freedom to extend that to ourselves. And even more importantly, grace without repentance is not even possible. 
right? Like you can't be over here in the middle of uh, sin and working away from God. Sin is just simply a sort of bible word for uh, doing things that are against God's good plan for the universe, things that hurt you, things that hurt others, things that hurt God. And you can't be over here uh, living and enjoying and embracing and still loving your sin and then still be in a place where you want to even accept the alternative, which is life with God. And so sometimes I think, and this is, this is going to be radical in 2022, I think sometimes we should feel a little bit bad about things that we say and do. It feels weird to even say. Now, 20 years ago, it wouldn't have felt weird to say, right? Like 20 years ago, that would have been a normal thing. And now we're like, I don't know, you're a champion. Uh, everything that you've ever done and said and thought is actually right. Actually, you're the hero in that story. You ever felt really bad about something and then you tell your friends a story and they try and they like make you feel better about it and you're like, no, 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 I'm the monster here, right? Like I'm the bad guy in this story. You don't understand. And I'm saying maybe perhaps we ought to like lean into that sometimes and recognize that it might be a good thing. Because only in recognizing that are we able to receive the grace of God. The message of God is that you should feel the weight of your sin, that it should actually grieve you. It should actually bother you. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 through 11 say this. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. Man, isn't that wonderful? Check out that first part again. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Is that the pathway that we're constantly hearing and telling ourselves to achieve lack of regret? Like, to get rid of regret, like, this is the plan. They're like, okay, actually, you should, like, fully embrace and understand and feel the weight of your sin. You should feel guilty about it so that then you can go to a holy God and actually repent repent and say, God, here is my sin. Here is all of my evil and ugliness. I want you to take it so that it can lead to a salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief simply produces death. See that thing inside of yourself that says this is wrong, that says I'm doing something that is wrong, that thing that says uh, you have done wrong and you should feel bad about that, that you hurt this person, that you hurt yourself, that you've worked against God and his good plan for the universe, that you have sinned. Paul says here that that feeling, as terrible as it might be and as painful as it might be, is actually a good thing because it leads to repentance, repentance which produces salvation without regret. Salvation in and of itself is impossible without repentance. The reason why it leads us to, uh, or the reason why it leads us to repentance is that God here is desperately, desperately trying to give you a free gift. He wants to give you salvation. He wants to give you eternal life. He wants to give you a right relationship with him. He wants to give you everything you've ever wanted. He wants to answer all of the deep and longing questions inside of your soul. He wants to satisfy you completely in him. And it's almost like God is stepping up to us and he says, hey, uh, do you want some life? It's free. And we look at him and we say, sure. Can I bring some of this death as well? Can I bring some of this long? And God's like, no. 
I don't really have an end to this little dialogue with this story because it's absurd, right? God is offering to us everything that we've ever wanted, every little hole that's in your soul, everything that's a little confusing to you, everything uh, that is painful and hurtful in this world, everything that is evil finally coming to an end. This is what God is offering to us. And when we try and accept that without actually rejecting the ways in which we have been rebelling against him, rejecting the evil in our own lives, man, what an affront What an insult to the God who's giving us this gift for free. I know I've been talking about sin, and it sounds like an old-fashioned word, but it truly is the best way to describe this. This is not just uh, the things that you've done, like you were mean to your sister. That's like a part of it or something like that. This is not like, you know, you yelled at your mom or something like that. That's definitely a part of it. It's not like you were, you know, like uh, a little bit devious at work. That's definitely a part of it. But it sort of captures this entire idea that every single thing that we do both evil within ourselves, evil that we put on other people, evil in the ways that we work against God, it's actually all an affront to a good and holy God. A God who is pure goodness and love in and of himself. A God who is perfect. A God who is always true. I don't know why, and I don't know what situation this is, but I I feel like it's uh, the idea that keeps popping into my head is like you show up at a party and you're like covered in like these like filthy rags. You've got like mud all over you. Maybe you're walking down the street as a rainy day and somebody drove past and splashed and just covered you absolutely with mud. And Jesus is standing there, sort of like the gatekeeper to the party. He's like checking invitations. And he looks at you and he says, hey, you can come in, but not like that. You can come in but not dress like that. Everybody here is in tuxedos. They're all looking nice. You're, you're a mess. You can't come in like that. And we turn and we start walking away completely dejected, rejected, broken because that is the only place that we ever wanted to be. And then Jesus says to you, but also I do have this spare pair of clothes. In fact, it's actually mine. I was going to wear it into the party, but now I'm not going to, and I want you to put it on. They're perfect. They're clean. They're fresh. This is the way that you get accepted in. Trying to receive that without repenting, without first recognizing, without first changing your mind, is almost like we're saying, like, "Uh, I don't know. I mean, my, my dirty clothes are pretty good. Like, I think they're all right. I don't know if I should feel bad about them, right? Like, why don't why don't you accept me in this party with my dirty clothes? Jesus is like, here's fresh ones. We don't even have to have this conversation. And we're still sitting here like, well, I I like some of my dirty clothes. Let's read on. John said in verse 11, he said, "I I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And here, John is pointing out that the baptism of Jesus would usher in something more than the baptism of John. He's saying, someone else is coming. I'm not even worthy to pick up this guy's sandals because while I am just dunking you, and it's the symbolic act of washing away of your sins, and I'm calling you to turn away from your sins, there is someone who is going to come and baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, I don't think he means a literal fire here, but I think what he's recognizing is that there is something that you can clean off with water, and there is something that only fire will remove. 
And by saying that Jesus is coming to baptize you with the Holy Spirit, he is saying, I am giving you an earthly and worldly baptism. He is coming to give you a spiritual baptism. I am giving you a momentary uh, reprieve and forgiveness and purifications from your sins. He is giving you a once and for all forever forgiveness of your sins. This guy that is coming that I'm not even worthy to carry his nasty shoes is going to give you total and complete forgiveness. And lo and behold, Jesus walks up. We see this as we pick up the story in 14. It says, John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. I love this picture. I don't know why. It just feels like the most Jesus way to go about this whole thing. Here he is, God's own Son, the only one that can actually forgive the sins of humanity, and he is humbling himself in front of all of us by being baptized by a man so that we should all know how. John was just a regular human guy, and here the Son of God is showing up and saying, no, I need you to be baptized so that I can show them about it. This will fulfill all righteousness. No one will have anything to say against me now, even though he had no sins to confess. He had nothing standing in the way. He had no dirt on his own clothes. He had nothing separating him from God, and yet he steps into the waters and is baptized by, that, by John, and in that moment, God speaks over him and blesses him. It says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And this sort of is the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. This is the transition from the child Jesus to the adult Jesus where he is going out and going to be telling people, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. I think there's a few implications here. Uh, the simplest and the easiest one is if you've never been baptized before or you've never actually been a follower of Jesus when you were baptized, maybe now is the time. We would love, love, love to celebrate that with you. Now, here at the Well Church, we don't believe that baptism has any sort of like, um, you know, supernatural kind of significance. It's, it's something between uh, symbolic and supernatural. So it's not just an event that's just like, oh, this is fun, and you get lots of pictures. Uh, and it's also not salvific in and of itself. It's not enough to save you. But it is a symbol where you show to everyone uh, who's a part of Dwell Church and whoever you sort of bring along to this, this day, you're saying, hey, I am turning away from my sins. I am asking Jesus to wash and to make me clean, and I am taking on his righteousness instead of my own. And so if you're a follower of Jesus and you've never been baptized, please uh, talk to one of us afterwards. We would love to talk to you more about that. I think the second implication, and really the main one, is simply this. Today is the day. Repent and believe the gospel. 
Repent and believe the gospel. The irony here is that the message is exactly the same whether you've been a Christian for 30 years or whether you still don't know how you feel about Jesus. The implication is exactly the same, that daily we should be turning to Jesus and repenting and believing in his good and true gospel. I had a conversation uh, with an older pastor. Uh, He has a couple of grown daughters, um, and uh, I asked him, I said, uh, you know, I've worked in the church a long time. I've even worked in, like, children's ministry um, back in the day, and I feel like I've, like, counseled a lot of children who've accepted Jesus and been been there to sort of, like, talk them through it, but it feels different with my own daughter, right? Um, And uh, Evie just, uh, she loves Jesus a lot. She talks about him all the time. She has this great faith, this powerful sort of belief in Jesus and what he can do, probably greater than mine. And so I'm like sitting here and I'm trying to sort of tease out this idea of like, well, how do I know when she's actually ready to become a follower of Jesus? How am I supposed to like sort of parse that out? I don't want to put some sort of false faith on her. I don't want to try and push her into something that maybe she's not ready for. I want this to be her decision and I want it to be genuine. It's really funny uh, Uh, I asked him, how do I know if she's actually a follower of Jesus? How do I know if she's ready? And he said, well, it's just like everybody else. You know, I know it's your own daughter, but you got to think about it. It's just like, she's just like every other human being that's ever lived. And it's one thing to like Jesus a lot. It's one thing to even love Jesus. It's one thing to be about what he stands for. It's one thing to trust him. He said, but with little kids who grow up with Christian parents, the thing that I'm actually looking for is repentance. Do they know that they have sinned and that they actually need Jesus? Not just that they like him, but that they need him for eternal salvation. That they need him to find a pathway to right relationship with God. That they need him to take their sins on himself, to carry them to a cross, to die, and to put those very sins to death. They know that they need that. Made me think in that moment, I think I need to know that I need that, and I need to know it daily. That even after becoming a follower of Jesus and even after him once and for all forgiving me of all of my sins, that I still turn back to those dirty and filthy rags. And I feel like very often I live a repentance-less Christianity. I live a Christianity where I sort of keep these little pet sins. I keep these little pet things that I like to do that, you know, that harm myself, that harm others, work against the good way of God. I'm constantly telling myself the gospel. I'm constantly telling myself, hey, Jesus died for you, rose on the third day. Now you have his Holy Spirit living inside of you. These are things I'm saying. How often am I actually saying to myself, you need to seek forgiveness and repentance for that sin. You need to actually turn away from that because that is one of the sins that Jesus had to die for. That's why my call is exactly the same whether you consider yourself a Christian for a long time 
or whether maybe you're even thinking that Jesus is calling you to become a follower of him today, that the first step is always to repent and believe. To change your mind, to turn away from all of the filthy rags that you have been wearing, that you have been carrying, all the things that you have been doing, and turn towards Jesus and accept his good gift of forgiveness. Accept his new clothes as your own so that you might take on his righteousness. And for those of you guys who are trying to figure out what it looks like to follow Jesus, And maybe this is the last thing that's sort of standing in your way. Maybe you're like, I like Jesus. I think I understand the whole story. I I definitely, you know, want to be with him. I want to be uh, in right standing with God. Maybe this is the final step. And here's all that have, you know, I'm just killing them all today. Uh, Here's all that have really required. Coming to Jesus, confessing our sins, and repenting and believing. You have the opportunity to do that even today. Would you guys pray with me? Oh my gosh, I'm struggling with mics today. I'm sorry. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you died on the cross for our sins, God, that you paid the price so that we would not have to. We thank you that you make it both easy and hard at the same time, God. Hard because we have to turn away from our sins. Hard because we have to reject the way that we were living. Hard because, uh, God, we've come to love those things. We've come to become addicted to them. We've come to, to feel like we need them, God. But, God, you also make it easy because your way is better, because your word is true, because your life is better than the death that we've been living. Jesus, we love you and we thank you for this free gift of forgiveness that you offer to us. Please, today, God, help us to see our sin. Help us to recognize our sin. Help us to accept your good gift of forgiveness and to turn away from that sin and instead turn towards you. Jesus, we love you and we trust you with this and all things. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope it brought you closer to Jesus and more in touch with the world around you. Being a Christian in today's culture can be hard. Fortunately, he gives us the gift of community through his church. So we would love to invite you to join us for one of our Sunday morning gatherings or for one of our weekly small groups. All the details you need can be found on our website, dwelldenver.org.